I have another new podcast for you guys. It is called Case Closed. One hot summer day in 2014, Erin Corwin kissed her husband goodbye and left for a hike in Joshua Tree National Park. She never came back. Two months later, her body was found in an abandoned mine shaft deep in the desert. The resulting investigation uncovered old secrets and permanently rocked the small marine community where Erin and her husband lived. You can hear the whole story on the new podcast, Case Closed. It's a great show. I really think you're going to like it. Subscribe to Case Closed wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1969, Joan Robinson Hill died 14 hours after being admitted to the hospital. Multiple autopsies could not determine exactly what caused the sudden and severe illness that took her life, and many suspected foul play. Two and a half years later, her husband John Hill was gunned down at his home in front of their 12-year-old son. Many believe a connection between the two deaths, though the legal system couldn't seem to prove it. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is a guest host, Lars. How are you, Lars? I'm doing good. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. You are the host of a podcast called Rusty Hinges. I know this because I write that podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Rusty Hinges? Rusty Hinges uh, deals with all sorts of mysteries, uh, both cons, hoaxes, and there's still true crime that's that's all dashed throughout that of all different sorts. And there's the occasional weird history, really whatever catches our fancy. That's true. So I need to make a big announcement before we get started on the episode, and it's something nobody wants to hear. If you're on social media, you already know this. I certainly don't want to be saying this, but Insight is coming to a close. We have a few more episodes, and our last episode will be on March 31st. As you guys know, we changed our schedule last year, and we did that because we were trying to fix some life podcast balance issues. And honestly, there were just, frankly, some issues with the quality of our content. We hoped we were on the other side of it, and we thought we were, but it turns out we weren't. And I know some people are confused as to why the Insight episode feed kind of looks like Swiss cheese at the moment. We did have to remove some episodes due to that quality issue I vaguely mentioned. We still have episodes through March 31st, so we have six coming up. So stay subscribed. And we will also let you know what we have coming up in the podcast space as we figure it out ourselves. But like I said, we have more episodes in us. So let's go ahead and dive into this one. This is one of those episodes where the background of the victims is vitally important to set up before we even discuss what comes next. So we're going to start there. John Hill was born in 1931 to a farming family. His family was comfortable financially. They ran a store where they sold their surplus to customers directly, no middleman. John's mother insisted that all three of her children study music. Music ended up becoming John's passion and really what he would have wanted to be his vocation. He learned a number of instruments, and while he was in high school, he transferred 
to a school just because they had a better band program. But as much as his mother wanted him to study music, this wasn't an appropriate career path in her eyes. His mother in particular expected John and his brother to become doctors. But rather than pursue a science undergrad like a lot of those planning medical school do, John got a liberal arts degree. But he did go on to Baylor Medical School. He took his residency in surgery, and he had to work in general surgery for a while. He was initially drawn to cardiac surgery, but he eventually opted to go into plastic surgery instead. John's reasons were pretty simple but strategic. First, there weren't that many plastic surgeons in the Houston area at the time, and he hoped to settle there when he finished. Second, plastic surgeons made good money, and that would help fund his music passions. The third thing that drew him to plastic surgery was the hours. While most surgeons would have to be on call to do emergency surgery in the middle of the night, plastic surgery is more often a scheduled surgery with regular office hours. This would allow him to earn a good living as a doctor without having to give up quite so much of his time. Again, this is designed to leave room for music. John was a good surgeon overall, but there are two significant issues we need to talk about. Not so much because he made mistakes, but how he acted after the mistakes. The first incident happened while he was still a resident and was doing general surgery. A man with serious liver disease had a swollen abdomen full with fluid. The operation to treat this was pretty simple. Just cut into the abdomen and drain the fluid. The main risk of this specific surgery is the risk of nicking the bowel. This could allow more fluid and feces to enter the body. So John was draining the fluid and started seeing feces coming out with the fluid. So he knew he had perforated the intestine of this man. The way he should have handled it was to do an emergency repair, but John didn't. Instead of doing this repair and noting the mistakes so this man could be appropriately treated, he just sewed him up without fixing it. Of course, the man died. This mistake was uncovered at autopsy, so John got pulled into the office of the examining surgeon. He had enough excuses and maybe even enough charm that this other doctor decided to just give John a reprimand rather than kicking him out of the residency and ruining his future career. One thing about this man who died as a result of John's mistake, in the book Blood and Money, which was a major source for this episode, He's described as a, quote, indigent drunk. And it makes me wonder if things would have been different if he had a family there demanding answers as to how this happened. Did John get away with this deadly cover-up of a surgical mistake because this man was considered less than? I think it's a question that would be interesting to know the answer to, though obviously it's not going to change anything now. This all happened 60 years ago. As we said, though, there were two issues. The second one happened in his first medical practice after his residency. He was working as a plastic surgeon, and his first patient was a jaw repair surgery. During the surgery, the drill bit he was using broke, and a piece was left in the patient. I mean, we don't really want to think about this, but this is actually something that happens. The proper protocol would be to tell the patient about it, but he decided to just let it ride. The patient came back complaining about some post-surgical drainage. John wasn't there to do this follow-up appointment, so his partner in the practice examined the man and said it was probably just normal healing and would stop soon enough. 
It wasn't for another few weeks that the drill bit was found when the patient had routine dental x-rays done. It was in his upper jaw. Obviously, he complained and the partner confronted John. John basically just said that he didn't want to confess to making a mistake on his first patient like that. The malpractice suit that the patient filed had to be dropped when the drill bit had made it out of his body through his nose on its own. These mistakes were not exactly Dr. Death-level mistakes, in case you listen to that podcast. John wasn't a bad surgeon. We don't want to think about surgical mistakes, but these are both considered, I mean, acceptable mistakes within these surgeries. What's not acceptable is sewing someone up and pretending it never happened, or leaving a drill bit in someone's jaw without telling them. I think that says a lot about John as a person, at least at this point in his life, that he would rather cover up than apologize and fix. Okay, so that's John. Let's talk about Joan. Joan's parents were Ash and Rhea Robinson. After they were married for a few years, they tried to get pregnant, but it just wasn't happening. In the 1920s, there weren't a lot of treatment options or even diagnostic options to get to the root of their issues. The couple first decided they were okay with this, disappointed, but ready to move forward, just the two of them. Ash's business grew, and the couple became quite wealthy. And Ash realized he actually wasn't okay with not having a child. So the couple decided to adopt a little baby girl that they named Joan. Joan, as an adult, did hire a private investigator to track down her birth family. The private investigator insinuated that Joan's birth father may have actually been Ash, and Joan's situation was more of a surrogacy than an adoption. But Ash would later say he knew who Joan's parents were, that they were good people, but that he wasn't the birth father. Joan grew up wealthy and indulged. At the age of three, after she enjoyed one of those little pony rides, Ash ended up buying her a horse. Like John's music, this became a passion and Joan did her first horse show at five years old. Joan grew into an absolutely stunning woman, and with her family's wealth, she became a popular figure in Houston's growing social scene, and she was regularly photographed for the newspaper. Who she was dating and where she was seen with that person would make it into the gossip columns. Joan's father, Ash, remained indulgent as she became an adult, but also overbearing. When she went away to college, he rented out rooms at a local hotel so Rhea could live there and keep an eye on Joan. Ash would visit on the weekends. When Joan was spotted by an MGM scout and offered a screen test, Ash refused to let her do it, even though she wanted to. He saw Hollywood as a place that was just going to corrupt her. Joan rebelled, though. While still in her late teens, she had been married twice. The first marriage lasted six months. The couple had moved to Pensacola, Florida, where Joan's husband was doing flight training with the military. Ash and Rhea followed. Whether Ash interfered in their relationship, I mean, we don't know, but I'm going to guess probably. She moved eight hours away and he left everything just to follow her. So I think it's safe to say he was having some trouble letting go. Then when Joan was about to marry a second time on the rebound and Ash told her that he forbid it, she and her second husband eloped. This caused a brief estrangement, but the marriage didn't even last a year this time. Joan said her husband had an issue with gambling, but Ash also essentially promised her whatever she wanted 
not to go back to her husband after she had come to visit them. She had gone because she got a call that Ash was sick, but from what a friend later said, it sounds like this may have been a ploy just to get her to go visit. So these are the two people we have meeting and marrying in 1957 when they were 26 years old. They met at a party and Joan was taken by John, a handsome doctor. She had a mutual friend help her connect with him again and they began dating. The courtship was fairly short before they married. John was still a resident, but Ash did see there was some potential with the hardworking young man. John's mother, on the other hand, was a very religious woman and had heard that Joan had married and divorced twice already. She was against the marriage entirely, but she couldn't stop it. The couple together became part of Houston's social scene. Having a high-profile wife like Joan was beneficial to an up-and-coming plastic surgeon like John. It also helped that Ash let them move into his huge house while John finished his residency and supplemented their income. Residencies are paid positions, but the pay was barely enough to live on. Joan, for her part, continued competing in horse shows and finding great success there. In 1960, they would have their only child, a son named Robert. Now, marriages and relationships are negotiated between the people involved, and what looks like the ideal to some isn't, and vice versa. Sometimes what would look from the outside as unhappy isn't for the people involved. So with that said, within the Hill marriage, John and Joan led largely separate lives. John worked long hours and was focused on his music at pretty much all other times. The first practice he joined after medical school actually let him go when he was asking the other doctor to cover for him too frequently because of music performances and commitments. He would be unreachable at times, and for a doctor, that's equal to being unforgivably unreliable. And Joan had her horses and her competitions. This required a lot of travel, and John rarely went with her. He wasn't interested in that world at all, and... Joan wasn't interested in his musical world much either. For a lot of people, this would be a perfectly fine arrangement. Happy together, but still independent. But there were other things that strained the relationship. One was that John controlled all of their money. He was the one who earned most of it, and in the 1950s and 60s, many viewed it as the man's job to control the finances of the home. There are people today who still hold that view. So like many housewives at the time, Joan had a set amount of money to run their house after they moved out of Ash's house. The problem was that it was far too little. She could barely cover the basic household expenses some weeks and would have to go to her parents for additional money when John wouldn't give her more. It's possible this was what John intended, or at least assumed would happen. He could say no to giving her extra, and then Ash and Rhea would fill in the gap. John spent more money on his music, buying new instruments, sheet music, and records than he ever gave Joan. This did change a bit when John decided he wanted a bigger house that would reflect his status as a successful plastic surgeon. He did increase Joan's household allowance to reflect the needs of a bigger house. This house they moved to was in the same neighborhood as Ash and Rhea, which thrilled them to no end to have Joan and their grandson so close. They were so happy with the idea that they loaned John and Joan the money to buy the house. John would still be reluctant to give Joan money when she would say she needed it. She didn't have a lot of say in where their family funds went. Their separate interests led them to pursue two different, very financially draining projects. 
So Jones was called Chatsworth Farm, and that's where she had hoped to breed show-winning horses. Ash bought the farm for her, and one of the conditions was that he had to run the financial side, since he had the most to lose if it went under. Joan agreed, and the farm also provided riding lessons and provided space for people to stable their horses. This was pretty much the only income on the farm, since the breeding project was not successful, and the farm never became self-sustaining. But this was largely Ash's money, not money from John and Joan's pockets. John wouldn't give Joan the money she would need to pay for things at the farm anyway. The second project was a music room John was building at the new big fancy house they bought. There were old servants' quarters above the garage, and John estimated that it would cost him around $10,000 to renovate those quarters into the perfect music room. His focus was on soundproofing the area, making it just acoustically perfect. He wanted the space not only for him to practice, but also to listen to music and a space where they could entertain people while he played music. John initially asked Ash for a loan, and Ash said no. He had loaned them money to buy the house that they still owed him, and he didn't really think his son-in-law's hobby was worth investing $10,000 for renovations. In today's money, we're talking $75,000. That is a lot of money to renovate a single room. Now add in that they still owed $30,000 that John borrowed when he established his own medical practice. They still owed $12,000 to Ash, and however much their mortgage was to the bank. This was adding up fast, and Joan had been told there was no extra money when she would request more for her household allowance. John borrowed the initial 10000 for the room from the bank, but also borrowed over that to pay Ash back what he had owed him for the house. But the 10000 estimate was low. We're talking very low. It ended up costing more like $100,000. He spent 15000 on a piano alone. He spent 20000 just on the speaker system. It was out of control, and soon that one room cost more than the purchase price of the house. So we have separate projects, separate lives, and now separate financial messes. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. When I started my business, the one thing I kept in mind was that I wanted to treat every customer like family. To me, those are the kind of businesses that stand out. The first point of interaction most customers have with me is through my website. So I knew I needed a website that was user-friendly and comprehensive. Squarespace had everything I wanted. They had beautiful templates to choose from and tools that make it easy for me to give my customers exactly what they need with the ability to manage my business, inventory, and sales completely on the go. Squarespace analytics give me insight into where our customers are coming from, which helps me tailor our outreach to where it's most needed. And with a direct message feature on my contact page, my customers know I'm just a click away. I couldn't be happier with how Squarespace helped me get my business off the ground. Check out squarespace.com start for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code start to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com start and use offer code start. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workspace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. 
But things went even further downhill in 1968. Their son Robert was eight years old, and John insisted that they send the boy to summer camp. This was a four-week sleepaway camp that was expensive and very much the thing to do for wealthy families. Joan was hesitant to send an eight-year-old to a month of camp, but John pushed, and so Robert went to camp. August rolled around, and it was time to pick him up. Like a lot of camps, the pickup day was kind of rolled into this family visit day, so the kids could show all they did and learned over the summer. All the families would be there. Friends later said that John didn't want to go, but Joan insisted that he go and support his son. While at the camp, the couple met a woman named Anne Kurth, who was also there picking up her children. It should have just been a passing acquaintance, except John called Anne about a week later. He had taken pictures on this camp family day, and had some of her and her sons. He wanted to bring them by, and he ended up spending the night. The couple claimed they weren't intimate the first night, but it wasn't long after that that they were. According to Anne, John told her that he and his wife lived such separate lives, but he wanted someone who shared his passion for music, while Joan's whole life was her horses. Within weeks of that first meeting at the summer camp, Joan had arrived home from being out of town at a horse show to a note from John that just said things weren't good in the marriage, and he went away for a few days to quote, find myself. What he did was move in with Anne. It was two weeks before John even contacted Joan again. She was devastated when he left, according to their friends. So she was excited when he called and asked if he could come over to the house and talk with her. I think she thought this talk was going to be about reconciling. A neighbor named Van had a front row seat to this, and the story she told is just odd. So John pulled up to the house, and another car pulled up behind him. John went into the house, and he was in there for about ten minutes. When he stormed out, and both cars left, Van called over to Joan to check on her, and she was crying. Van told Joan about the second car and that she thought a woman was driving it. So Van and Joan decided to go look for John and this mystery driver. So they got into the car and drove around. They saw the second car in a pharmacy parking lot, and they pulled in. That's when they saw John in the passenger seat of the car and Anne Kurth in the driver's seat. John got out of the car, and Van went into the drugstore to give them some privacy. After she saw John get back into Anne's car and drive off, she hurried out to ask Joan what happened. Joan said that John wasn't having an affair with Anne, but with her husband, and that he was being blackmailed. We know Anne didn't have a husband, but Joan didn't know that at the time. It's also possible that Joan made up what John had said. He may have told her that he was having an affair with Anne. And she made up a story she thought would be more embarrassing to him, regardless of what he did or did not tell Joan. He didn't seem to care who else knew he was having an affair. He did not continue his affair with Anne with any amount of discretion in the least. They went out together to public spots where he used to be photographed with Joan, and it wasn't long before pretty much everyone knew that he had left Joan and was with Anne. Joan thought Anne might be a fling. And she seemed initially determined to wait it out, and just see if John was going to come to his senses. But after he rented a second apartment rather than staying at Anne's full time, she started to suspect 
Maybe there were even more women. The really sad thing in this whole mess is that it sounds like Joan really believed that she was in love with John and that they had a marriage that was worth fighting for. But this was not a healthy love. It was a sort of codependence. John didn't seem to know what he wanted. He would tell Joan that he wanted to come back and he wanted to see his son more, but that Anne was the one who wasn't allowing it. When Joan confronted Anne about this, Anne said John was lying because she had basically told him he should go home. He should figure things out with his wife. She wanted John to either stay in the marriage or divorce. She didn't want to be in a relationship that wasn't going anywhere either. So it looked like Joan and Anne were kind of in the same boat, in some kind of limbo, waiting to see what John was going to decide. But regardless of what John was telling Joan, he was introducing Anne to people in October as his fiance, in spite of only knowing her for two months. It wasn't until mid-November that he even filed for divorce, and in his divorce filings, he accused Joan of being unkind, harsh, and having tyrannical conduct during their marriage and after their separation. I think we should make a note about his music room. Yes, he had left his wife and hardly saw his son, but he was continuing construction on the room. It's obvious he expected to get the house in the divorce. But he was going to be in for a fight because Joan refused to counterfile or consent to the divorce. She was going to fight it. Whether out of pride or spite, or maybe she really just thought John needed more time to sow his wild oats before he came home, we don't know. We just know that she told friends that she was going to fight it. And what happened next is a matter of conflict. According to Ash, a couple of weeks after filing for divorce, John came over to talk to him. John actually didn't want a divorce. He had changed his mind and was eager to reconcile with Joan. He was so eager that he had Ash write a letter he would sign, making some assurances to Joan. According to John, though, Ash verbally berated him until he agreed to sign the letter that Ash wrote and that John had no say in it at all. The letter essentially asked Joan's forgiveness and asked if he could come home. Then the letter lists things that John promised should he ever leave again. These promises were all serious financial penalties. Things like how Joan would keep the house entirely. He would just sign over ownership to her. He wouldn't claim any ownership or even require her to buy out his share of the value of the house. The letter further stated that even though Joan kept possession of the house, John would still pay the mortgage and all the upkeep in addition to alimony without there being any end date. And he would also give her a lump sum payout. So now who really wrote this letter? I mean, honestly, I have to say it was Ash. There are two clues here that I see. One, John's music room meant more to him than anything, and he intended to ask for the house in a divorce. He was openly dating Anne at the time, so it isn't like he was acting like he wanted to come home. And as we will find out, he continued to see Anne after signing this letter. The second clue is that all the penalties for any future separation are all financial. They would ensure Joan's security. The truth is, between Ash and John, Ash is the one who cared about those things. He's the one who cared about money and assets. Ash is the one who saw money as the greatest tool. But why did John sign it? I think it's akin to a false confession. He was intimidated by his father-in-law. I'm sure Ash let him know exactly how much a divorce would cost him when Ash threw his full bank account behind Joan in the courtroom. 
I think John felt backed into a corner. Now, this is further backed up by the friends who saw John and Joan in the days after the quote-unquote reconciliation. They said John looked unhappy, and not like a man who was just reunited with the love of his life. Additionally, it took him nearly two weeks to go to the courthouse and withdraw the divorce action. But most telling that this reconciliation was not John's idea is that he continued to see Anne, like Charlie said. This time, though, John was not just discreet about the affair. He was secretive. And it wasn't that hard for him to hide that they were still seeing each other. John's pager would go off, he'd make a phone call, and then have to hurry off to the hospital for an emergency. This was a little odd because he specifically chose plastic surgery, so he wouldn't have to do that so much. But you really can't control when a patient has a bad reaction or a post-surgical complication. So in this way, it was a really good cover for time spent with Anne. Joan wasn't quite so ready to trust John, so she did suspect he was still running around on her. There were times when he would be gone to the hospital and she would call there only to find out he wasn't there. And then he wasn't at his office, so she knew. And we have to wonder if she felt it was just worth that just to have him home with her or if she was still holding on to this idea that Anne was just a fling. So seven months after the start of the affair, it was still going strong, except Anne was now getting pretty impatient with John. She wasn't going to wait around forever, so he had to decide if he wanted to be with her or Joan. And she gave him an ultimatum at some point that he had to decide, and she gave him a deadline that was mid-March 1969. And March 1969 is when Joan went from a healthy and active 37-year-old to being on her literal deathbed. We know a bit of what was going on in the house in early March because Joan had house guests for about a week. They reported things were clearly tense between the couple, and John wasn't around the house very much at all. These friends, Diane and Eunice, were from Dallas and had stayed at the house in the past. They said this wasn't like their previous visits. On March 14th, which was a Friday, Joan and John went to an annual benefit dinner but left early because John claimed he had to make hospital rounds. After dropping Joan off at home, neighbors heard Joan yell after his car that he had blown it and that he was losing his wife, son, and music room. Clearly, she didn't believe his excuse that he had to make rounds at the hospital that night. It's not clear when John came home that night, but he did at some point because he gave Joan a pill to help her sleep. Both John and Joan mentioned this to the house guests. She ended up sleeping almost all of Saturday, getting up at four in the afternoon. John left to take Robert for a haircut after Joan got up and didn't return for two hours. When Joan asked Robert what took so long, he said he wasn't supposed to tell her, but they stopped at the apartment John lived in during the separation. Between him leaving Friday night and then taking their son by that apartment and then telling him not to tell his mother, she was furious that night. So we have John at the house with an angry Joan plus the two house guests, Diane and Eunice. Joan called her friend and neighbor Van over so that the four women could all play bridge together. And also because she was angry at John, she often engaged Van as, I don't, I don't know, sort of like a witness to John's behaviors, but also moral support for herself. So John was playing records in the music room while the women were also in the music room and they were playing cards. And Joan kept saying things about how she was going to see an attorney on Monday about her 
options and about how the marriage wasn't good. She was talking to the friend she was playing cards with, but she was saying these things loudly enough so that John could just about hear them. So, I mean, you can imagine how awkward this was for the other women. So the night then ended weirdly with the couple dancing in the music room after all this weird talk about lawyers and bad marriages. And then the two were last seen going into their bedroom together. The next morning, Sunday, Joan woke up happy. She told Diane and Eunice that she and John had talked, and John assured her that everything was going to be okay. Whatever he said completely charmed her, and she knew their marriage was going to work out. But she also said she wasn't feeling very well. She was fatigued, but also nauseous. She tried to eat some breakfast, but she immediately vomited it up. Joan headed back to bed and was in and out of bed all day. John went to purchase some medications for her, though she couldn't keep anything down, so he gave her an anti-nausea medication in a shot, and he reported that it helped. It appeared to everyone to either be a nasty stomach bug or possibly food poisoning. John said his stomach was a bit unsettled as well, so it may have been something that they both had eaten. It can take a while to get over food poisoning or stomach flu, but generally you feel better on day two, or at least not a whole lot worse. Yet Joan was definitely worse. Diane and Eunice were headed back to Dallas as scheduled, and Joan didn't even get out of bed to say goodbye to them. They had to go to her room, where she said goodbye to them and assured them that she would be fine. They say they offered to stay, but John and Joan told them they should go ahead and head home. But John said he asked them to stay to look after Joan, and they are the ones who decided to go home instead. John had to go to work, so he left the family's maid, Effie, to care for Joan. But he told Effie that what Joan really needed was just to rest, so don't disturb her. Just attend to her if she needs anything. Effie did check on her and found Joan awake but weak. On Tuesday morning, John had Effie come in and help clean Joan up. She had defecated while in the bed. Now, Effie was surprised that Joan was that sick, but she did what she was told. She got the bed cleaned up and brought Joan to the bathroom to clean her up. And she said it appeared to her that Joan had actually been lying in that mess for a while. Joan was so weak that Effie was immediately concerned. This is a situation where you or I might have called for an ambulance or at least brought Joan to the hospital ourselves, but Joan's husband was a doctor, and he had just left the house knowing her condition, so she hesitated. But Effie couldn't just do nothing, so she called Ash. And Ash wasn't home, so then she called John's office, and he wasn't there. He was at a music performance at a school. She left a message with his office that Joan was very sick and that he had to come home right away. So this was about 10 a.m. His office then called the school and left a message with them, which they gave to him as soon as he finished his performance. Now, John was supposed to meet Anne immediately after the performance, and she was outside the school waiting. He told her he would have to call her later because Joan was very sick. John went home and decided to take Joan to the hospital. And what happened with this hospital is incredibly important in this case. Remember, John is a doctor in the city, so he knew all the best doctors and the best hospitals. He insisted to Joan's parents that he was going to take her to a hospital that was a little farther away, but was the best for Joan's condition. They could give her specialized care, and that he had called ahead so they would be ready for her. 
The hospital he picked was a suburban one that actually didn't even have an intensive care unit. And the doctor he called said the symptoms John described sounded like a routine stomach bug. John was calm and did not make it clear the severity of Joan's symptoms. The hospital was decidedly not prepared for Joan. And about getting to the hospital, John insisted on driving her rather than calling an ambulance, and Joan's mother, Rhea, slid into the backseat with Joan. She would later say that it took John 45 minutes to drive the 11 miles, which is about 18 kilometers. There was not traffic. He was just driving really slowly. On admission, Joan's blood pressure was 60 over 40. So one time I had this really bad reaction to an epidural. It was really bad. And the last thing I heard was 64 as the top number for my blood pressure. And I didn't even hear the bottom number because I lost consciousness. So when the nurse got a 60-40 reading, but Joan was awake, weak, but awake, and answering questions, she took it again thinking it was a bad reading, but she got the same reading again. Joan was in shock. The goal was to stabilize Joan while they tried to figure out what was causing this. And she looked like she was making progress towards that when it became obvious that her kidneys were not functioning. She wasn't stable enough to move to a hospital that could treat her appropriately, but they began dialysis immediately. John had gone home, but he was called back to the hospital at this point. Effie, the maid, said that he left around 9.15, but he didn't arrive at the hospital until more like 11. And again, this was a 20-minute drive. Joan experienced sudden heart failure at about 3 in the morning and died within a half an hour. Between the onset of symptoms and her death, Joan suffered a truly horrific and painful death. Joan's death left a huge unanswered question. None of the tests run on Joan in the hospital gave any indication of what was wrong with her. How did a healthy 38-year-old woman who was dancing with her husband on Saturday die of multiple organ failure on Tuesday morning? Ash's answer was that John killed her either by poisoning her food, medication, or injecting her with something. Joan's funeral was on Friday, and Ash was in the DA's office on Friday morning demanding that John be investigated for murder. The problem is that the medical experts could not figure out what killed Joan even in autopsy. Texas law at the time said that any death that happened within 24 hours of admission into the hospital required an autopsy. Autopsies did occasionally happen at funeral homes, so this itself wasn't weird, but somehow the funeral home got the idea they were supposed to embalm Joan without waiting on the autopsy. By the time the pathologist arrived at the funeral home at 10 a.m. to start the autopsy, Joan had been embalmed, and that meant there was no blood to test. Any blood taken at the hospital had been used or disposed of. They tested her tissue for poisons, but a blood test would have allowed them to test for more things. They were able to take samples of her organs, and due to the condition of her pancreas, the pathologist determined that acute pancreatitis was likely the cause of death. It was basically her only organ that showed any issue, and severe pancreatitis could cause the symptoms that Joan had experienced. Ash was afraid that John was about to get away with murder, though, and once Joan was buried, she wouldn't be able to be exhumed and re-autopsied, so the DA decided to go ahead and send the coroner to the funeral to see what to do. Acting respectfully like any other mourner, the coroner went up to the casket. He observed Joan's body. He decided that instead of stopping the funeral so he could do another autopsy, he would just use samples from the first autopsy. 
but it got around that the coroner had showed up at the funeral. I mean, this wasn't any funeral. Joan was a doctor's wife, so John's colleagues were at the funeral paying their respects, and they knew the coroner. They recognized him. So the whisper started about why was the coroner there and if Joan's death was being seen as suspicious. The second autopsy wouldn't bring any clearer answers, though. The coroner did not agree that the pancreas was diseased. The state of the pancreas was consistent with what he would have expected several hours after death. He determined instead that Joan died from acute focal hepatitis, and she may have gotten it from seafood she had eaten shortly before she got sick. The issue with this diagnosis is that while this can be a fatal disease, the progression of the disease. Isn't so short as two days, from onset of symptoms to death. Ash wasn't the only one who thought John was behind this. Diane, one of the house guests, thought the whole situation odd. Perhaps it's because she was a witness to Joan's sudden onset of illness, or because she saw the way she and John were acting toward each other in the days before Joan got sick. She told Ash about an odd thing John did multiple times while they were there. He would come home with pastries for dessert, but instead of passing them around and letting them select their own, he would serve them on plates. He kept giving Joan chocolate eclairs even after she made a comment about wanting to have the cream puff he was having. This wasn't just something Diane thought was odd in hindsight. She thought it was weird in the moment that John was controlling which dessert Joan ate, and that Joan acted like the steady stream of dessert pastries wasn't a normal occurrence. So when Joan got so sick and then died, Diane approached Ash, and Ash began to wonder if the poison was in those chocolate eclairs. Like we said, nothing showed up on the toxicology report, but those only check for things they know to look for. It could always have been something that wasn't tested for. If John was trying to look innocent, he may have wanted to wait a little while before remarrying, but. Within three months of Joan's death, John and Anne got married, and he moved her and her children into the house he had been just living at with his wife months before. They did all of this in secret because John did not want the negative press. Plus, Ash was already spreading it around town that he was a philanderer and a murderer, and so John was just trying to keep things low key. The DA couldn't build a case around John Hill being a crappy husband, or for moving on too quickly, or even for telling his wife what pastry to eat. Those are all legal things. But he had Ash really breathing down his neck, so the death was put in front of a grand jury. But there was nothing there to indict on. At worst, John should have taken Joan to the hospital sooner, or to a hospital that had an intensive care unit. But that isn't the same as purposely making her ill. So the grand jury dismissed without action. A second grand jury in 1969 also did not bring any charges, but they did grant an exhumation order. You see, Ash knew they needed more evidence if this would ever go to trial, and the best evidence would be a definitive cause of death. So he asked John to consent to an exhumation for a third autopsy. This was just a formality. Obviously, John was going to say no. Whether he had a hand in Joan's death or not, he had nothing to gain from disturbing his wife's remains. But Ash had to ask and be denied, so he could go to the grand jury and ask for an order compelling the exhumation. And that's what happened. They granted the order to exhume. 
Ash hired a top medical examiner to conduct this third autopsy. John sent doctors to the autopsy as well to protect his own interests. There was a fear that Ash would basically get a hired gun to see whatever Ash told him to see in this autopsy. And then the pathologist and coroner who did the initial autopsies went, as well as the attending doctors, well, and let's just say it was a crowded room. The third autopsy happened in August of 1969. One of the biggest shocks of the autopsy was old dried mud clumps in the casket. The one way this could happen is if Joan had previously been exhumed. There were no signs the body had been tampered with, but why would someone have dug up her remains already? A call to the funeral home confirmed that there was previous exhumation just three days after her initial burial. John had wanted her buried without jewelry, not even her wedding ring, and he thought she had been buried with the ring that he wanted to get back. He would tell his attorney that it was for sentimental reasons. The ring was not on the body. It must have been lost at some point. But it was alarming to some that within three days of his wife's sudden death, John had inventoried her valuables. And it angered Ash that John wouldn't give permission for an exhumation because he said he couldn't stand to disturb her remains when he had already done just that thing, looking for a ring. But there were no signs on the body that John tampered with her, and those who saw this exhumation said he didn't. So the primary concern that John somehow was covering up evidence through his secret exhumation, this was alleviated. This third autopsy was thorough. Every puncture mark was noted and compared against the hospital records of injections and IVs. They all matched up to confirmed injection sites. There were no unaccounted for needle marks. This doctor did note some issues with the original autopsies that we're not going to get into entirely, except to say that Ash Robinson believed to some extent that there was a cover-up on the part of some of the doctors involved in Joan's case. It turned out that John actually had a 1% ownership stake in the hospital where Joan had been taken. Now, that's not exactly a controlling share, to be sure, but Ash had tunnel vision when it came to this case. He believed Joan was murdered by John, and everything he saw only confirmed that in his mind. This is just the walking definition of confirmation bias. All of the doctors at the autopsy gave their opinion of what happened to Joan. The doctors that John Hill sent believed she died from meningitis. Another said she died of an infection, but that it would be impossible to determine the nature because Joan had been embalmed prior to autopsy. The doctor Ash had hired and who issued the definitive report said he believed she died from meningitis and sepsis, but that John's delay in getting Joan to the hospital contributed to her death. Now this gave the state something. Two grand juries in 1969 heard evidence of Joan's death, but did not make any determination. The third grand jury was different. One of Ash's oldest and closest friends was on the grand jury, and he wanted to have the evidence heard one last time to settle the case once and for all. They heard a lot of the same evidence as the other juries, but they also heard evidence from Anne Kurth as to John's violent nature, according to her, that is. Between the second grand jury and the third, John had filed for divorce from Anne. His criminal defense attorney, the famous racehorse Haynes, told him not to do it. Not only were the optics bad with John remarrying and then divorcing within six months of his wife's death, but a spurned Anne could be a dangerous Anne. As his wife, Texas law said she could not testify against him for anything he said during their marriage. 
While this privilege would last for the criminal court even after the divorce, it didn't apply to depositions in the divorce. She could say whatever she wanted to in the divorce depositions. John insisted, though, he wanted the divorce. He made accusations of violence against her as well, and he said he just couldn't stand to live with her any longer. In order to make it cause the least animosity possible, John took Anne away for a romantic getaway, and while they were gone, he told her that his lawyer recommended that he and Anne separate and divorce because it looked bad that he was with his mistress so soon after his wife's death that this was just a legal maneuver. Even though this is the opposite advice that he got, he was playing it off as this was the lawyer's advice. Now, maybe Anne even believed him at first. But when they got home from the getaway, all of Anne's things had been moved out. John had movers come while they were gone. It was pretty obvious that this was planned in advance before he even talked to her about it. So he had to get her out of the house, basically to essentially evict her. Any hope at preventing animosity? Out the window. Their divorce was final in March 1970, and she testified in front of the grand jury the next day that not only did John kill Joan, but he had also tried to kill her multiple times as well. John also testified in front of this third grand jury. He justified his care for his wife and denied a lot of what Anne had accused him of. His emotionless testimony was decidedly not well received by several jurors. The assistant district attorneys working the case were also not impressed by how glib John seemed when discussing the horrific death of his wife that had happened just a year previous. They felt pretty sure he had done something to Joan, but there was absolutely no proof. Any proof there was went away when her body was embalmed. But they felt there was at least a case for negligence. As a doctor, John should have recognized his wife's illness was severe sooner than he did. And because he was treating her illness, he was acting as a doctor and not just as a husband. A negligence case, when you think someone committed cold-blooded murder, seems rather weak. So they searched the law books for something more serious they could charge him with. And they felt they could approve murder by a rarely used method. They were charging him with murder by omission. John didn't just fail to get his wife medical care. He saw the danger she was in and purposely withheld appropriate care so that she would die. When presenting this to the grand jury in a vote of 10 to 2, they opted to indict John Hill. This is the first time in the history of Texas that murder by omission was charged. We are going to simplify the trial because it doesn't actually really matter except for Anne's testimony and then how it turned out. On the 10th day of the trial, Anne Kurth took the stand. Because she had been married to John, she couldn't testify to anything he said to her during their marriage except the prosecution found an exception to this. If John said something while committing an act of violence on Anne, she could testify to it as part of the testimony of the violent act. This was a bit shaky, and John's attorneys felt they could probably get it overturned on appeal, but the judge allowed it in anyway. He warned the state not to venture outside of the boundaries of this violent incident. The state had an additional concern with Anne's testimony, though, and that was her credibility. She tended to be theatrical in her retellings of what happened, and that comes across poorly, comes across lacking credibility. But she brought in pieces no one else had, 
and they needed her testimony, so they just focused on prepping her well, or at least they thought they did. Anne testified that prior to Joan's death, she had seen Petri dishes in his bathroom at his apartment, and she also saw pastries in the fridge that he told her not to eat. Then she testified to the violent incident between her and John. The way John tells the story is that he was driving, and he and Anne were arguing. She grabbed the wheel, he lost control of the car, and he slammed the passenger's side into a concrete bridge wall. Anne's story is that while they were driving that night, John confessed that he cultured bodily fluids from sick patients and tried to infect Joan through putting the cultures in the pastries, but that didn't work in making her ill. So then he gave her medicine to make her vomit and triggered her symptoms. When she asked for medication to alleviate the vomiting, he gave her a shot with an antibiotic in it, but also the germs he grew in those petri dishes, and that's what led to her illness. Anne was horrified at what he was saying when she realized he had driven them to Joan's farm. John said that the person who lived at that farm, quote, doesn't live anymore and neither do you, as he slammed the car into the wall on Anne's side. She wasn't wearing her seatbelt, so she was able to move closer to John's side before impact. Then John, not happy she was alive, pulled a syringe out of his pocket and tried to stab her with it. During the struggle, he dropped it, so then he pulled out a second syringe and tried to stab her with that one, too. She's trapped in the car since her side of the car is smashed, and John is blocking the other side. The attack stopped suddenly when another car drove beside them and checked to see if they were okay. This story seems odd on the surface, John causing a purposeful car accident after a confession, which is hardly a sure way to kill anyone. And then he has pockets full of murder syringes. Oh, and... Did we mention he has a broken collarbone at the time, so one of his arms is in a sling? So this whole fight over the syringes was done with one hand. That was her whole story, but the jury wouldn't actually be allowed to hear all of this. They did hear about the Petri dishes and the pastries. Then she told the story from when John said that the person who lived at the farm, quote, doesn't live anymore and neither do you, but not the full confession before that. When she got to the part about John trying to stab her with the syringe, the prosecutor asked her how she knew the syringe was an attempt at murder and that he wasn't just trying to give her a sedative after an accident since she was clearly upset. Anne answered, quote, he told me how he had killed Joan with a needle and, end quote. And that's all it took. Anne stepped too far over the line of what was allowed and what she said was far too prejudicial. The judge couldn't simply tell the jury to disregard that huge bombshell. So a mistrial was declared in February of 1971, and John went home to await retrial. Ash was angry, obviously. He wanted justice for his daughter. The state had to decide if they were going to retry the case. It wasn't a terribly strong case to begin with, and an informal polling of the jury showed they would likely have acquitted John. So the state got 10 days into their case and the jury wasn't convinced. This would not bode well for any future trial, but they did decide to pursue a retrial. A trial date was set, and then delayed, and rescheduled, and then rescheduled again. Some began to wonder if the trial was ever going to happen. It was finally set for November of 1972. In the meantime, John moved on with things. He married for the third time in June 1971 to a woman he had met in December 1969, shortly after splitting with Anne. 
His new wife, Connie, shared his love of music, so they did a lot more together than John did with either of his previous two wives. And Robert, who had been through so much with his mother's death and his father's unstable and brief second marriage and then his father's trial, well, Robert really seemed to bond well with Connie. John's reputation was largely ruined in this whole process, and doctors weren't referring patients to him as frequently. Banks were calling in unsecured loans, but he had spent everything he had paying his legal team. He was essentially ruined at the time of the mistrial in early 1971. However, by fall 1972, things were actually starting to slowly turn around. John was living a quieter life, and old colleagues who had distanced themselves during all the drama, they started calling again and sending him referrals. Then in September 1972, John and Connie went to Las Vegas. John had a medical conference there and Connie just went along, leaving Robert at the house with John's mother to care for him. They returned on September 24th and Connie rang the doorbell thinking Robert would run to the door excited they were home and he was 12 years old at this point. The thing is, Robert did run to the door excitedly about 30 minutes before, but instead of his parents, he opened the door to an intruder who burst into the house and tied up both Robert and John's mother. But instead of robbing the house, he waited. When Connie rang the doorbell, the man came to the door and said he was robbing them. The man grabbed Connie by her necklace, but Connie managed to get away and ran to a neighbor. While running, she could hear gunshots. She called police, but so did Robert. This amazing 12-year-old was going through the most traumatic thing in his life, and that's saying something since he had experienced the trauma of losing a parent. But he got up and managed to dial for help while still being partially bound. John Hill had been shot three times and was dead by the time help arrived. When the shooter left, he was focused on getting rid of the gun. Too focused, it seems, because he threw it in a nearby bush before meeting up with his getaway driver. The gun was traced to a doctor in Dallas. The doctor in Dallas admitted that he had hired a sex worker, and while he was in the shower, she had stolen his gun and had taken off. He knew her by the name Dusty, but knew that was a fake name and had some reason to believe her real name was Marcia McKittrick. And that was her real name, but the shooter was a man, not a woman, so they followed Marcia's path to the men in her life and it led them to a man named Bobby Vandiver. Marsha and Bobby were on the run together for a while. They separated, and Bobby was caught back in Texas. He confessed to shooting John Hill and implicated Marsha as the getaway driver. While in custody, Marsha also gave a confession. This wasn't a robbery. It was a hit. And the person who hired them was Lilla Paulus. You guys all thought I was going to say Ash Robinson. It was a woman named Lilla Paulus. She set up the whole thing, and according to Marcia, it was at the behest of Ash Robinson, who was convinced his son-in-law would never be convicted. Ash, until his dying day, denied involvement in John's murder. But Marcia said that she saw him at Lilla's house, where she was living at the time, and that Ash was focused on getting custody of his grandson. Bobby and Marcia corroborated each other's confessions and their statements, though Marcia would later say hers was coerced as she was going through heroin withdrawals at the time she gave it. 
We will simplify the legal stuff here, but I recommend reading Blood and Money if you're interested in the detailed legal wranglings. So Bobby was free on bail, and he was supposed to show to be a witness against Lillipolis in April of 1974, but he decided not to show. When he was found in a cafe and the officer attempted to arrest him, he pulled a gun. There was a scuffle and Bobby was shot. He died at the scene. Marcia was convicted and given 10 years in prison. She was paroled after five. Lilla's trial was delayed due to health issues, but she was eventually convicted in part due to Marcia's testimony against her and in part due to her own daughter's testimony. She was convicted of masterminding the murder and sentenced to 35 years. She died in prison in 1986. So the question here is, what is the connection to Ash Robinson? Ash and Joan both knew Lilla and Lilla's daughter through the horse circuit. The house guests the week Joan died also knew Lilla and her daughter. Joan is the one who initially got Lilla's daughter into writing. So according to Ash, he didn't know Lilla more than to say hi, but Lilla had an affinity to Joan enough that she sought to avenge her death on her own and without Ash's knowledge. Marcia saying that she saw Ash discuss the contract killing with Lilla wasn't enough to bring Ash to trial. You cannot convict on the testimony of a co-conspirator alone, and they couldn't find any evidence of his involvement. They couldn't find any money trail that led back to Ash or phone records or anything. He supposedly paid $25,000 to Lilla, but they couldn't find it anywhere in his financials that showed the money coming out of his accounts and nothing about it going into hers. So he was never even indicted. So here we have two deaths and two questions. Was John responsible for Joan's death? And was Ash responsible for John's? Well, one of our main sources for this episode, aside from appeals documents and newspaper archives, was the book Blood and Money by Thomas Thompson. Thompson was sued three times for libel due to the book. One was a police officer who didn't agree with his depiction. The other was Ann Kurth for much the same reason. Thompson won both of these cases basically because while his descriptions of them were not flattering, they weren't lies. Ash Robinson sued as well because he felt the book painted him as a murderer. The case was dismissed without ever going to trial. Ann Kurth wrote her own side of the story in her book called Prescription Murder, and even theorized that John Hill did not die at his home that night, that it was staged so he could frame Ash and run off to Mexico to avoid charges for the murder of Joan. She claims his face was battered in the fight with the shooter and unrecognizable so he could have been a stand-in. Also, she claimed parts of his autopsy were inconsistent with him, like eye color and height. This theory doesn't make a lot of sense since 12-year-old Robert would have had to be in on the plot. When the ambulance made it to the house, Robert was crying over his father's body. I find it really distasteful that anyone would put forth a theory that would make it sound like this poor kid who had lost everything was somehow faking this grief. Connie Hill, along with Robert Hill, did sue Ash for wrongful death, but they lost the case. Robert and Ash then got an illegal battle over Joan's will that they eventually settled. Ash died in the 1980s. Having reconciled to some degree with his now-grown grandson, Connie remarried, and if anyone here has been to the Colorado Mountain College, she and her husband are the James and Connie Calloway that the James C. and Connie L. Calloway Academic Building is named for. 
the living victim of all of this tragedy, Robert Hill, grew up to be an attorney. Connie was able to secure custody of him after John's death. He lives a private life, but he told the Associated Press in 1999 that he rides horses competitively like his mother, and he's really proud of that. (laughs) 